certainly thankful for that song service and for that prayer. And Brother Tim left his watch up here, so I'll take that as a hint and not take him up and abuse his gracious offer of using as much time as I would like. But I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Amos. Um, we'll consider some thoughts from that book of prophecy. The book, and if you can't find the book of Amos, it's in the Old Testament. After Joel, before Obadiah, 30 books after Genesis, 37 books before Revelation, and about 10 books before the Gospel of Matthew begins. If you can't find it now, just pull it up on your phone. But uh, the book, it's necessary to understand just a little bit about Amos. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But the context of who he is and where he came from is, I think, very relevant and very important. So Amos was a herdsman. Uh, that is to say that he herded some type of livestock. We don't really know what that was. And he was a dresser of sycamore figs, which means that he was a very poor person, most likely. And he was one of the people that would go to the wild fig trees of that area and he would take an oil compound made of some various ingredients, herbs and olive oil, and he would brush it on each individual fig so it would ripen fast enough. And then the poor people would go and they would eat those wild figs. You know, these are far subordinate to our understanding of a fig. So he was a very poor person. And it explains some of his solidarity with the situation of Israel at the time because he came from Judah. He lived in a town, uh, a, a settlement probably about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. And so the Lord calls him out of his state of poverty, out of this uh, you know, podunk town that he lives in, and says, I want you to go up and prophesy against Israel. And Amos come, and he's known as the doomsday prophet, the prophet of doom. I assure you this morning we're not going to talk about doomsday. Not everything we talk about is going to be sad. But Amos came with a very serious message. And he came and he condemned some of the sins that the children of Israel were engaging in. Because Israel would be destroyed before Judah. Remember at this time that the, the um, tribes had split. There was ten on one hand, there was two on the other hand. And Israel's going to be destroyed by Assyria. It's going to be laid waste by Assyria in about 722. Then about 586, Babylon will come along, destroy Syria, and then they go destroy Judah. And so Amos comes and he says, because of these things that have gone on, you're going to be destroyed. That's why he's known as the doomsday prophet, because his message is infused with a little bit of hope. But for the most part, he comes and he says, hey, sorry, but you're kind of beyond saving here you've sinned against the lord time after time and you know my fellow prophets they come and they came and they've tried to warn you but you haven't listened and so beginning in amos the first chapter he goes through some of the various enemies of israel and judah and he mentions judah and he condemns them all for their sins so i want you to imagine this as a somewhat of a rhetorical argument. It's almost like a speech. So this is sort of a basic outline of what the prophet would have gone throughout Israel proclaiming. 
He would have gone through and he said, he would have said, look at this country and look at this country. You're surrounded by all of these nations and all of them are sinning. And he's going to build his argument up to a climax. He's going to say, you've got Tyrus, you've got Moab, you've got Ammon, and they're all sinning against the Lord. And then he's going to step back and he's going to say, Israel, you are too. You're doing exactly the same thing. And the, the message that he delivers speaks of some of the, you're going to hate this phrase, but the social injustices of Israel. And we're going to get to his response to these in a minute because his response is a little bit unconventional. Because there's a lot of political conversation surrounding some of these same matters that we're going to observe in the situation of Israel in our country today. We see a lot of, you know, economic disparities. We see, you know, there's various cries about oppression and these sorts of things. And Amos proffers a response to these things. But it's not going to be one that we typically observe in our culture. Now, on this, it's important to to mention a few things before we dive into the message of Amos. Beginning in the... Bear with me. We're going to talk about a little bit of history. If you don't like history... Um, that's your fault. It's not mine. But uh, beginning in the Enlightenment, there was, there was this idea that the Bible could no longer be considered a legitimate source of authority. It was a book of fables. It was no longer the divinely inspired Word of God dispensed to men, which was a legitimate source of moral and practical authority. It was now just, as Karl Marx would say in the mid-1800s, the opiate of the masses. It's basically what the intelligent use to deceive the ignorant. That's been been infused into our culture. We have to grapple with that a little bit. Because the Christian cannot make that assumption. They have to understand that the Word of God, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for all the various situations which we often find ourselves in. And God has preserved His Word. Because I don't know about y'all. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious. But an angel did not appear from heaven and hand me the written copy of the Word of God that I have today. It's been preserved by the power of God as men have passed it down orally, as they've translated it from ancient manuscripts. And this copy of the King James Bible that I have today has been preserved by the same power that will save His elect children from hell. So I have to believe that this Word of God is profitable and it is a legitimate source of authority as surely as I would believe in the certainty of my own salvation. So as we consider that point this morning, it's important to remember that. Because I assure you, if you're in a college environment, high school environment, out in the workplace... And you give someone a solution to a social problem out of Scripture, they're going to laugh you out of the house. And they're going to say, well, how would we try to respond to these various social situations that we're encountering on the basis of the Word of God? And as a disciple of Christ, we have to say, because the Bible is a legitimate source of authority for me. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise. That's not a ludicrous assumption. That is something that you believe by faith. It's very necessary and important. So Amos, he begins to consider the situation of Israel. Beginning in Amos chapter 2, 
And we'll read in verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. That is, that's a statement that says, even if you had sinned three times, the Lord's not going to forgive, but you haven't just sinned three times, you've sinned four, so I'm certainly not going to forgive. Because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. That pan after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. And a man and his father will go into the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes, laid to pledge by every altar. And they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Also, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up of your sons for prophets and out of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? And he goes on and he continues to detail the sins of Israel. And his message, his his generalized message to Israel is, woe to them that are at ease in Zion. He's saying, Israel, you kind of deteriorated to the point where there is nothing to distinguish you from your secular counterparts. You're the same as all of these other nations that we're considering. And he's he's calling to remembrance how Israel is separate from all of these other nations. He's saying, remember... When I brought you up out of Egypt as slaves, I took you up out of Egypt. I made you a great nation and you went in and you overthrew all of these other people that possessed the land that I promised you. Now, in a larger sense, this is an illustration of the church of God, because we have to understand that the church is composed of the elect people of God. His elect people are due to all the promises and benefits Promised to them by the eternal covenant which God made before the world began. So we can understand some things about the church as we read about Israel. We can understand things about the elect people of God as we read about Israel. And so what we observe when we read is that there's this specific set of sins that Israel keeps committing that God told them not to commit in the Levitical law. And so I think a lot of times we're tempted to look at the Levitical law and say that's slightly irrelevant to our case today. And I've done that many times. But what the law does for us is it illustrates a lot of acceptable patterns of behavior for for the disciple of Christ. Now, thankfully, Christ came. He shed his blood. There There is no more reason that we should participate in a lot of the more gory aspects of the Levitical law. But when we read about some of his commandments, like the Ten Commandments, those are things that we can read and they can illustrate to us how we ought to act and how we ought to behave. And part of the Levitical law was, was this idea that all of our financial and uh, you know, economic and social interactions ought to be infused with morality. Okay? And that's what the children of Israel had forgotten. Because they were in a period of serious prosperity. Their king, he, as you read in verse 1, he prophesied under Uzziah and Jeroboam, the son of Joash. 
Those were both, although they were evil kings, they had brought Israel into a state of great material prosperity. They had, ble- they had expanded their borders. They had defeated countries. They had taken all this wealth into themselves. And they were incredibly prosperous. And the warlike attitude of their kings had brought them into a state of peace. But what Israel had, for- Israel had forgotten God's law in the midst of their prosperity. So they were so prosperous... And everything was so wonderful and so peaceful and just so great that they had forgotten who brought them there. And the one who had brought them there was Jehovah God. And he had told them, if you obey, I'm going to bless you. And for a time, Israel did try their best to obey as much as they could, even though they were rebellious and they would fall in and out of fellowship with God. And he would bless them and then he'd strike them with some sort of famine and they would repent and come back to God. But at this point, they've just gotten so far away that Amos says, just, just remember who brought you here. You didn't get here of your own accord. The Lord went before you, and He took down the Amorites, and He took down all of these other people who possessed the promised land. He brought you out of the Egypt. He set you aside as a chosen people. He brought up Nazarites out of your sons. That is to say, young men that were dedicated to the service of the Lord. He said, is it not even thus, so you children of Israel, saith the Lord? I want you to think about this. We're here this morning because of the grace of God. Amen. I hope we've been set apart as a chosen priesthood, a, a, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, because God has called us out of darkness into a marvelous light. He has set many of you aside for His service. In some ways, that I'm sure all of you here this morning are a... a Spiritual Nazarite, you set yourself aside for the service of God. You tried to refrain from the things of this world so you could dedicate your life to His service. But Amos says, when you've dedicated yourself to the Lord, there needs to be something that distinguishes you from all the people that are around you, even from Judah itself. Now, I don't know what your situation is here this morning. Many times I have beg the Lord, Lord, if it is at all possible, lay some small statement upon my heart that will be relevant to everyone in this building. I don't know if he, he's not really in the habit of doing things that way. But there are a number of ways that you may have made hard decisions and then for Christ and for the convictions that you have in the name of Christ. I'll assure you that if you are here this morning, hurting because of that decision that you may have made on the basis of your convictions that the Spirit of God has put within your heart. The Lord looks upon that and He is pleased with that. In the midst of your despair, your sadness, your depression, the Lord can send down His Holy Comforter and bless you in a way beyond comprehension. That is the, the Holy Ghost is not some abstracted force that moves, randomly moves among the people of God. It is as if Christ came down to earth and He stood behind you and you could feel His breath upon your cheek. It is the direct presence of God. It's a comforting force to His people. And He's reminding Israel, you're exactly like these other nations. 
you sold the righteous for silver. You've made, you've made a commodity out of, of servitude, indentured servitude. You know, there were many patterns set aside in the Levitical law. There were many uh, ways that someone could redeem, could redeem their debt to someone by working for them for a period of time. And what Israel had done is they had enslaved these people in debt and now they were continually sold in bondage. They were forced to serve these people for the rest of their life. They sold the poor for a pair of shoes. They looked at someone that was in poverty that they could help. And they say, well, if you would come work for me for two weeks, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, I'll give you a pair of shoes. And they, they panted after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, and they turned aside the way of the meek. Or they looked at the meek and the poor, the little bit that they may have had, and they said, well, enough is not enough for me. I want more wealth. I want more material goods. So I'm going to take things from these poor people, and I'm just going to accumulate them to myself. I'm going to put their funds in my bank account so that I could be rich. And a man and his father will go in into the same maid to profane my holy name. Now, this is obviously a terrible picture of immorality. But what it also illustrates is the way that sometimes the immorality of a father can be transferred to their children. The bad example of a parent could be followed by their children. And that's what the Lord meant when he told the children of Israel. He said, if you go after other gods and you pursue other things the repercussions of that iniquity will be visited upon your children and your children's children and their children because the Lord understands a pattern. You know, what the, what the parent does in sometimes just minimal amounts, the children often do in excess. That's why it's such a sober responsibility. It's sobering to me even now to think about that if I was blessed with children one day, my example would be emulated by them. That is a matter of human nature. And so Amos accosts Israel and he says, the fathers and mothers of Israel are committing these terrible acts of immorality. They're profaning my name. And even worse still, their children have looked at their example and they followed after them. And they lay themselves down upon clothes, laid to pledge by every altar. And they drink the wine of condemned in the house of their God. So another thing that was going on during that time is y'all, y'all understand sureties and, and pledges and that sort of thing. You know, where if you don't have collateral to produce to someone, when you um, set yourself in debt to them, you say, well, I will provide you with this other object to satisfy that obligation. And so one common thing that was considered in the Levitical law is a man's cloak. Because a cloak was something that everybody had. It was their, one of their main articles of clothing. And often when a poor man came to a rich man and he said, Hey, I need a loan. The rich man would look at him and say, well, You don't have any money, so I'm not giving you a loan. But if you'll give me your cloak, if you'll give me your main article of clothing, that which protects you from the elements and keeps you warm at night, I'll give you this loan. And so the poor man would give him his cloak and he would go back out into the cold with the money and the rich man would just keep his cloak. And the Levitical law condemned that. See, this is something that the New Testament may not address as directly as the Levitical law does. But when we read it and we realize we're going about, we're having these financial interactions with people, those interactions ought to be infused with our Christian beliefs. Our compassion for other people, 
Our love for other people ought to demonstrate itself in the, inner, in the everyday interactions we have with other people. They may not be part of the church, but we ought to illustrate to them our beliefs by letting that morality, you know, that sense of Christian ethics infuse our actions. And so these people had so just solidified themselves in just these terrible sins that Amos says, you are drinking the wine of the condemned in the house of your God. What that means was, is in a symbolic sense, they were taking part in the wine that would be given to convicted criminals. And what that wine did is it dulled the senses of the criminal, it dulled the senses of the convicted, so that they didn't have maybe a full understanding of what was about to happen, and they wouldn't feel the pain of their pending execution. And so Amos tells the children of Israel, you're drinking the wine of the condemned. You're taking part in all this material prosperity, and it's dulled your senses, and you don't really understand what you're participating in. And again, he goes on and he reminds them of the graciousness of God. We're running very short on time. I'm closing. Um, So the impact that this has on us today is I'm going to be very direct. I'm not going to mince words with y'all here this morning. When we look at many of the modern political agendas that are propounded in today's society, we observe solutions to a lot of the chaos that we have observed over about the past year and a half. I'm talking about riots, destruction, just outrage, anger. And then on the opposite side of that, we have fear, seclusion, worry, depression. And we're told, well, these things could be fixed by some type of you know, government program, government initiatives, implicit bias training. I'm just being direct with you all here this morning. Amos is observing some of the same patterns that we have seen in the United States today. And what is his solution? His solution is a return to the precepts of God's Word. Now, if you look at that and you say, Brother, I can't, I can't use that as a legitimate offense against a lot of these ideas that are being discussed today in society. I don't think that's a leg- the Scripture is a legitimate source of authority for that. Remember what we discussed earlier. For the disciple of Christ, Scripture is our measuring stick. Amen. And when we go into the book of Amos, and we see some of these signs of a nation that has departed from God, mm-hmm. the answer is not more of man's efforts. The answer is a return to God's Word. Amen. The answer is once again infusing our interactions with other people with His commands. Man will continue to foul the water, I assure you. He will only do what he's been doing since he was created, acting in defiance of God's moral authority. God established Himself as a legitimate source of moral authority in the Garden of Eden. He told Adam, He said, you can eat of all the other trees of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not, don't eat of that. Just don't. For on the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. We're told that the world was in a state of goodness. 
God made it good. God have fellowship with man. He said, just don't break this law. And guess what? Man, he looked at the fruit and he said, it's good for food. It looks good. I don't know what kind of fruit it was. I know it wasn't an apple because I hate apples and they're disgusting. (laughs) But he said, just don't violate my commands. But man looked at it and he saw that it was appealing and he said, it's going to be okay. Anything that looks that good can't be bad for you. And he went ahead and violated God's command. And what came to pass? Did God's promise, or, or God's, you know, God's dire warning, if you will, um, go unacknowledged? No, the world fell into a state of decay. It's, it's just continuing to decay. It's in a state of entropy. And so that brings the understanding, again, that when you go about and you may observe some of the different solutions that people proffer to a lot of the chaos we see in society, whether it's COVID, whether it's riots, whether it's elections, whether it's any of these other things that have been on the table recently, the answer is here. Amen. And I would say that if, if, if you're still questioning that, dig deeper into this word. Dig deeper into what it says because it, it will tell you, it will testify. It will testify conjointly with the Spirit of God in your heart, and it will tell you the answer is here. It's hidden. It's often convoluted by society, but dig it out. It's a treasure box, and once you open it, you will be taking things out and admiring them for the rest of your life. I just entered college, and I look at this book, and I see a monumentous task that will never be completed. But it's a joyful task. Thank you for your time.